Welcome to the fourth Provider Podcast and very, very stoked to have a very special guest on the podcast today and um, none other than New Zealand's best known fish show, Matt Watson. Welcome, Matt. Hey, Carl. How, uh, how are you? Um, how have you spent the last six weeks? Um, well, we've sort of been locked away from what we love doing and um, where have you spent it and who have you spent it with? Um, well, family, of course, bubble, yeah. you know, so, um, I mean, and that's been real good. There's been a, a real positive to sort of come out of it. Um, is, um, you know, I've had a couple of lockdown birthdays at home, whereas, um, you know, what a lot of people don't realise is with the amount of time I spend away from home, and no, it's definitely not all fishing, it's, you know, got a lot of business commitments, um, you know, I've, I've missed out on quite a few family birthdays and that's, those sorts of things. So it was good just, just to be there, um, you know, around for the kids' birthdays, my birthday as well. So that was all, um, that was all really cool. But um, business has sort of just kept, kept rolling as well, except we've just had to do it separately. Like, um, you know, I'm, I'm in our office and studios today and it's just, just, just me here. You know, everyone else is working from home. So... Yeah, we've actually just, you know, in a lot of ways, my work hasn't changed a lot because what people don't realise is that um, I'll quite often do a six-week stint where I don't get get to go out fishing. It's all 60 hours a week indoors, doing business deals, dealing with broadcasters, editing the shows, except now we're just doing that as a team um, remotely. They're all working from home and, um, Yeah. yeah, so crazy, crazy. Yeah, it has 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 been um, been crazy times. I must admit, I've I've liked uh, just that little break, just to sit back and have a good think about um about yeah where we go next and am I am I sort of doing the right thing and all of that and maybe tweak a few things up and it's been good, especially good once um once we're let back out and to be able to get back in the water. And I see you see you did a similar thing got out diving straight away. Um, what was yeah. it like after sort of being locked away and missing the ocean for so long? What was it like getting back in the water? It was fucking fantastic for me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, as you can imagine, um, funnily enough, I didn't actually know how much I'd missed it until I got back, until I actually saw the water. Um, we, I, I'd headed out, we've got a building site which is right on the, on the coast, so the lockdown's kind of thrown a spanner in the works with our, our building at a critical stage, sort of trying to get out of the ground in a tricky building site. And it's only 20 metres from the ocean we're, we're approved to, to build. So um, headed out there, you know, as soon as we were unlocked to, you know, with the contractors to get things underway. And honestly, only as an afterthought, I threw my dive gear in. I'd been that, you know, I'd been that busy. I actually hadn't felt that I'd missed it. Yeah. yeah. And, but, as soon as I drove down the driveway towards the beach and saw the ocean right there, I just like, holy shit, man, I've got to, I've got to get in there and, and got the work done that I needed to get done on site. And, um, yeah, it wasn't until I got on the water, I realized, man, geez, that was what's been missing from my life from the last yeah, five yeah. weeks, you know, just yeah, yeah, that freedom and, and the peace and quiet, you know, and a bit of a, bit of a um, break from, you know, the, the voices in my own head as well that are sort of, going, geez, you know, this has had a big impact on business and sponsorship and all that sort of stuff. So that's always buzzing away in the background. Yeah. And I find that free diving is one of the few times where I can actually fully switch off 
and just concentrate on what what's in front of me you know what might swim out behind that that next rock sort of strategically thinking about how I'm going to approach you know the next ledge and just it's really that's all I'm thinking about yeah whereas literally you know from two minutes stepping out of the water I'm already starting to think about all the other things I've got going on in my life so I think it's just a you know I don't even have to shoot a fish to be happy with spear fishing. In fact, quite often I, well, on that very dive, you know, I've got a bunch of craze, um, um, which was good, but um, I, I could have bowled over a 25 pound snapper that was just, geez, it, it just swam out in front of me. I, I swam around the corner to look at a king and this big black snapper swam out. And, you know, my first instinct was, boss, wow, what, a, what an opportunity. And then, Fortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm able to sort of stay calm enough and go, hang on, what do you need with that? You know, like, yeah. Yeah, just saying, and, um, and actually it was a, it felt like it sat there for 10 seconds, but it probably, it was more like two seconds probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it, um, yeah, it eventually figured out that it was in danger and boosted off. So it's just, you know, things like that. And I think, um, I was actually spending a bit of time thinking about it today, looking at some um, some footage of which we're editing at the moment of um, spear tagging, where I've, I've developed an applicator that goes on the end of your spear gun, so you don't have to kill the fish; you can tag it instead. Yeah, yeah. And just comparing the footage and myself and other guys, we had another guy using the spear tagger for the very first time, and how close he was able to to get get to fish that are otherwise more spooky, and um, I thought for the first time about it today, how fish have this innate sense of when you're in danger. Like, I mean, you would have seen it in the water yourself and God knows how many times on bloody Blue Planet or whatever, um, a school of fish with a shark cruising right through the middle of them. And those fish aren't bothered by the shark because they can tell yeah. by the shark's body language and everything that that shark's not gonna eat them. Yeah. 15 minutes later, I've seen it with Marlin, you know, I've been in filming Marlin, cruising in amongst some kahawai. The kahawai weren't bothered. Then all of a sudden, two or three of the marlin lit up and got it, and all of a sudden the kahawai were like, holy shit, shit just got real. And they ball up or they take off. And, and I think it's almost the same. The moment that the spearo put that spear applicator on the end of his gun, he was no longer going down to kill a kingy, he was going down to try and tag one. All of the other fish stayed closer to him. And in the kingfish coat, it's, it's an interesting thing. Anyway, I've digressed from your question, but it's just something that sort of occurred to me today. And like the number of times I'll have big snapper, like I spoke about, swim out in front of me um, when I'm looking for a cray. You know, people always say, oh, you know, whenever I've not got my gun, that's when I put my gun down, that happens. I think that could be something to do with, um, you know, the old fish's innate sense of danger. Yeah, you know, might, might be a little bit more acute than we than we think. Maybe those things aren't coincidences. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a little bit large. Just got out of the water from four hours of um, getting a getting a feed. Went for a bit of a free dive over at Sailors and got a couple of crays and shot some butters. And even with the butterfish, if you dive down, nestle yourself in the cow, lock down and take you almost take your mind completely off the fact you're going to shoot one. Soon as you look up, there's usually one straight in front of you. Yeah, spear gun. Yeah, thing, eh? yeah, did right. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing how that free diving, just immersing yourself in the ocean, how it um, it calms you down. I thought I was pretty chilled out during the whole lockdown, but soon as I got out and walked in from my first free dive, 
Tia, my partner, was like, whoa, you look, you, yeah. you look completely yeah. different. You're like yeah. yourself. Yeah, it does. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit like guys that love surfing, it's the same thing, you know, it, it does, it has a big effect on your, um, on your disposition. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm new to it as well, you know, I, I, I definitely don't consider myself a, a free diver. Yeah, yeah. Well, for starters, most of them are fruit cakes, you know. I'll, I'll say that to all my Sparrow mates as well, mate. They're a little bit, they're a little bit odd that bunch, mate. There's not enough oxygen to the brain, you know. And they all, they'll get hard out on it. So I definitely don't want to be described as a as a spear fisherman or a, or a free diver. I'm more, I'm more a fisherman that um, one day decided to put a bloody mask and snorkel on and have a closer look at what's going on under the water and just loved it. So. Yeah, so maybe we change the subject before I sound like too much of a bloody Spiro because I don't want to be, I don't want to be pigeonholed to be one of those freaks. So um, that whole that whole thing of you know both of us getting out straight up to lockdown and gathering a, a feed of kai. Um, I see I see a few fair few other people probably hundreds of thousands of other people chose the other route last week and went straight to KFC and Macca's. Do Do you think as a Country, I mean, we're not as bad as the US, but you think as a country we're losing the plot a little bit in terms of um, in terms of our connection to nature and gathering our own food and cooking our own food. Like, I mean, that yeah, yeah. Um, I've actually spoken to this, um, you know, like uh, publicly and and just you know uh, around the fire uh, with mates over over beer, you know, and and that game, you know, around fire. I mean, it's all about um, you know, a, a primal connection to doing what is actually good for us. So, you know, you described a moment ago, you know, your partner said you'd come back from a from a dive and your whole disposition had changed, but there's actually something physiological going on there. Um, your mother nature makes us feel good about things that are good for us, that we should be doing. You know, and, and people will say to me all the time, geez, you got, you got a bit excited and yahooed a bit when you caught that fish. Well, that's that's my body's natural response. Yeah, yeah. So what's going on there is, and it comes back from primal times. You know, if if the man, the hunter and gatherer, or not always the man, went out to get some food, and they were successful, well then, well first off, you hook a big fish, or you you're in a tussle with an animal to kill it. You know, in the bush or wherever, your body actually gives you adrenaline first, so you get the strength to to be able to do it and. You know, I, people say all the time, geez, how do, you, how do you swing on a rod for 12 hours or 15 hours pulling on a swordfish? Whereas you couldn't physically get a stick and hold a 20 kilo weight on the end of it. Yeah. But the adrenaline, knowing that there's a fish there, gives you the strength. So that's the first natural response your body gets is, is that strength. And then when you've land, landed the fish, if all we thought about was, oh my God, I've killed something. Oh, you felt terrible. Well, you'd never do it again. So your body releases endorphins and said, guess, guess what? You've just done well. You know, you've done something that will keep your family alive, potentially your village alive for the next month. And now you've got, and, and that's to lock it in to give you this good feeling so you go and do it again. I don't want to get too much into anthropology, but it's kind of like sex. You know, a lot of guys might say they wouldn't even talk to women if sex didn't feel good. So, you know, it's just a, another example of, you, your body rewards you with these feelings when you're doing things that are good for you. So that's why, um, you know, I, I think Kiwis um, internationally have got this um, thing. I've done a lot of travel and speak to a lot of people. 
you hear people talk about Kiwis, like, man, Kiwis got this great disposition, this real connection with their land and the sea and all that sort of stuff. And that's because we're actively doing it. At, at, at this um, you know, enigma that is the Kiwi, you know, the, 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 the brand of the personality that, that how other people see us, that is innately attached to the fact that we still hunt and we still fish regularly. And it gives us this disposition that people can't quite figure it out. You know, they're like, man, there's something about you guys. You're just so cool. And it's because we're doing that. But as that shrinking and less and less people having that direct connection with their food, um, the, the thing that is Kiwi is being lost a little bit. And, and that, I'm worried. I'm legitimately worried about what that means for us. If it, it slowly we just become more a bland Western civilization that relies on the supermarket and the takeaways as you allude to for getting your food because i mean how can i describe it as like going back to that whole anthropological thing you know and and being rewarded and and your body feeling good about doing something i mean you know what it feels like when you go out and catch a fish or get a cray and you're sitting around with friends or family eating it you, it feels good because it should. And it's because humans have felt good about that for hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, you could do it another way. You could jump in your car in the morning, sit in motorway traffic, drive for an hour in traffic. You could work for a boss you think's an asshole, um, do it anyway. You get, he gives you some money at the end of the week. Then you sit in traffic again, go to the supermarket, buy a crayfish, bring it home and go, oh man, I've got a cray and I earned it. Well, yes, you did earn that cray, but you've had to go through a whole lot of bullshit to get it. Whereas, mate, there's nothing like going to the source, cutting out the middleman, cutting out all the other bullshit in the world, and just grabbing that cray and eating it with your mates. And that is the essence of what gives us this cool Kiwi disposition. Hit the nail on the head there, mate. I think, um, yeah, I've experienced both worlds. I've lived in the city after sort of growing up in small towns and going to the city and, and just that, that whole thing of being stuck in the grind, spending over an hour in traffic to go to a job that you don't like, working for someone you don't like, and then, yeah, coming home and you're just like, what am I, what am I doing? So, I, yeah, I'm, I feel very grateful that I made a decision at a very early age to um, get back to the coast and uh, do what I love. What, um, what you've, you've obviously, you know, followed your passion from a very early age. What, uh, what led you down that route? What inspired you down, down that route? Um, family, I, I get, I just, I mean, my earliest memory is fishing, like my literal first thing I remember in my life. I was just before my fourth birthday and I was catching a, a snapper out of a dinghy with my mum and dad. And um, I just remember that it's just a, such a mix of fear and excitement. Um, yeah. I thought my most prized possession in the world, my little sprat rod, um, which I'd been given for Christmas, um, was going to get ripped out of my hands. And so, like they say, your earliest memory is something that um, was quite often traumatic. And it was a little bit traumatic for me, but I just remember catching this snapper thing and it was the biggest fish I'd ever seen in the world. And, 
Um, I don't know whether that moment had that much of a profound effect that I just wanted that feeling again, that mix of fear and excitement that it set me off on fishing or whether it was in the blood. I mean, my, my grandfathers on both sides were fishermen. My mum's brothers are all commercial fishermen from a long line of commercial fishers. And I just wanted to be a commercial fisherman. I wanted to, I worked for my uncles from the age of 12 and, by the time I'd finished school, I'd actually done, I'd done my three and a half thousand logged commercial sea owls by working every weekend and all my school holidays. So I was just gonna um, basically be a commercial fisherman for the rest of my life until, I mean, it kind of came all unstuck on Christmas day when I was 17 and I got into a punch up with my uncle who owned all the fishing boats over a game of backyard cricket. Um, you know, I won't go into that anyway. We've, we've sorted that out um, and so I, I went away and worked for another uncle on the other side of the family that was a was a roofer and um, I did that and and it was around that time I really discovered recreational fishing more I mean I did rec, rec, rec fishing you know with my dad as a youngster but I really just wanted to be a commercial guy just because that's all I ever remember wanting to do I didn't want to be a bloody fireman. My dad was a fireman actually, but didn't want to be a fireman or a, a pilot or have all these other things. I just wanted to be a fisherman. So um, going away roofing, it, it only gave me the weekends to go fishing. And that's when I really discovered, geez, there's, there's more than catching fish by the ton. It's, um, you know, it's going back to, you know, I can maybe make a career out of catching them one at a time. Um, like I used to on the weekends with, with my dad and my mates sort of thing. So while I was roofing, I, I sort of, you know, just sort of kept it as a personal passion that, um, you know, something that, that motivated me. And it wasn't until some years later um, when I'd moved up to the Bay of Islands to work on game fishing boats and stuff. So um, I'd never, ever set out thinking, geez, one day I want to have my own fishing show. It was never never that um it was it came about because look i knew i always wanted to be a fisherman and um you know by the time you know it was i was working on game fishing boats and i was spending up to 200 days a year away um from my wife and kids you know i had kids at that stage um crewing on boats and as much as i loved the job um, i missed the challenge of having my own business because i while i was in auckland i started my own roofing business I was literally sitting on the back deck of the boat one day where we're up at the Kings and it was shit weather and I we're catching a few marlin, but I just thought, man, um, I'd like to, I've got to stay fishing because I know I'm a fisherman and I can't be happy unless I'm fishing. I can't go back to commercial because I was already being pretty outspoken um, against some of the things going on in the commercial fishing industry. You know, I'd, I'd just learned, I'd, I'd learned about stuff that I was doing as a youngster in my own family's business, you know, just the amount of waste and destruction that, that we were doing. Was, and, you know, which makes family gatherings interesting to this day. Um, but anyway, um, so I thought, you know, what can I do where I can stay being a fisherman, have my own business, um, but not work in the commercial fishing industry? And I just thought, oh, I could start a fishing show. Like it just popped into my head. Um, and so I was, I just went about doing what other people do when they want to start a business. I wrote out a business plan and went to the bank and asked them to loan me some money so I could buy some TV cameras and 
and the woman who was the you know doing the loans um at the time my personal banker laughed at me like literally laughed and said oh no i can't this is cute but you know you're a fisherman that who's a qualified roofer i can loan you money to do a roofing business or i can loan you money for a fishing business but i can't in good faith give this company's money to someone who thinks they're going to start a bloody television production company in Kerry Kerry with no zero experience. So, but the good news was we had enough equity in our hands. So I just leveraged the hell out of the house, um, borrowed the money I needed and it was pretty easy. Um, that part it was the hard part was going home and telling the missus I'd just thrown in our single income, um, working on game fishing boats that we were just scraping by on. And, you know, we've got an extra 80 grand of debt on the mortgage. The good news was, though, I told her that I was going to make a really awesome fishing show. And I was, I was going to all work yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I, I grew up um, watching, you know, the likes of Graham Sinclair, GT. Um, yeah. yeah so, you know, they all inspired me. And no doubt you got some inspiration from, the, from those guys as well. You've, you've sort of taken things to a whole nother level, including a global audience. You've been on talk shows in the US, um, you've really taken things up a notch. You're, 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 and you're still at the top of your game. You're still, you're still making amazing entertainment and um, you know putting recreational fishing on the map in New Zealand. How, how do you stay ahead of the game and keep reinventing yourself? And did, do you, did you ever think you'd end up in this position where you're, where you're up there? No, um, um, no, I mean, I didn't think I would, but at the same time as I say that, I didn't think I couldn't either. You know, I hope that doesn't come off as being sort of smug. I've always, um, I, I've never felt like, oh, I can't do that. And a lot of it's just blind naivety. Like, yeah. geez, if, if that day that I thought, geez, I, I could make a fishing show, you know, if I knew back then what I know now about the television industry and, and how bloody cutthroat it can be, and um, I would probably have never have done it. But, you know, I've always sort of had this thing of, okay, um, this is what I want to do. I'll just figure out how to do it. Um, and, you know, you only know how you think yourself. So, um, no, I, I've never sort of sort of set a goal and said, oh, you know, I want to be a letterman or I want... I want the show to be worldwide or anything. It's always been about, right, how can I just make it that little bit better? I mean, the first time was, can I, could I possibly get a TV show on, yeah. onto TV in New Zealand? That was, is it possible? And once it's there, it's like, well, okay, well, what can we do with it next? And you just, I think if you're just sort of looking at the next thing, um, um, you hear quite a lot, oh, you've got to have a plan. You've got to have a green plan. And yes, um, I do, but I, I'd never sort of, and I still don't sort of see, okay, what is global domination of the fishing and the you know, television media industry look like? You know, I've got some ideas on what might work. More and more now, I would think about, you know, what do I want out of it? Um, you know, and the things I want out of it is um, I want to go fishing more. And in recent years, the success of my business has made less and less fishing every year for me. Probably for the last 10 years, there's been a trend of less days on the water that I get to do every year. And so you, you're talking about thinking over lockdown. I had plenty of time to think about it then. 
it's like maybe I need to rephrase, you know, repackage what success looks like. Yeah. Um, because, you know, if you talk about, you know, followers and, and all that sort of stuff, all of that's growing, which is great. But if that means I get to go fishing less, well, that's not really success, is it? So um, where do I want to go? Um, yeah, I, I want to spend, spend more time fishing and perhaps um, maybe sort of pulling back the, the media that I do with that in terms of, hey, um, you know, maybe I don't need to be the, be the biggest, cut it back, make it more raw and real. Um, because there's no denying that, um, you know, if I look back at the way our media has been done, I can literally see the influences that I had at the time. So when I was doing stuff with Discovery Channel and everyone's like, oh, hey, it's got all got to be danger and hype. Uh, I saw that influence on what it meant for our New Zealand shows. Um, I look back at that now and I cringe at it quite a lot. So... I guess now I'm just more comfortable with just fishing for the love of it. And if people like what I'm doing and the style of fishing, great. Um, if they don't, no, I'm not that worried. I used to sort of look if someone chipped me on social media, you know, there'd be 300 comments on a video and, and 270 of them were positive. Yeah. But the guys that were all like, oh, you're just a dick, you can't even fish, or oh, what a tosser. I got. They were the people that I felt I needed to respond to not all the and I just I don't know as I get a bit older I just won't call it thick skin but I just kind of you know I just want to do what I want to do and hopefully other people will still enjoy it and follow it yeah yeah, yeah. well no doubt um no doubt COVID and um you know the economy being shut down for five weeks and you know then it's you know, it's still reasonably slow. It's undoubtedly have had an effect on your business, um, mm -hmm. as as it has a lot of other businesses. Well, I'm still off the water. Um, yeah. What probably hasn't been talked about so much in uh, media is like the social and mental health side of things. What um, you're looking pretty sharp yourself there, Matt. What um, <laughs> what have you what have you been doing to stay mentally sharp and positive, and you know? keeping yourself going back in the office each day and um, keeping your business going? Well, it's, um, there's a few things at play. Some of the best still things that, you know, that I want to, you know, I, I still want to do. Um, so I want to, um, you know, both on the water. So there's, there's places I want to go and there's, there's content I want to produce and, and put out there. So that seeing your ideas fulfilled is a big motivator for me. Um, and you know it can get frustrating when there's roadblocks, um, and like the biggest roadblock, as you alluded to, is not having the money to do it. Particularly when um, you know sponsors and advertisers have had their you know their their spend frozen, and which has a yeah, which I just didn't see coming, having such an immediate effect on us. But um, you know I, I try and harness some of that um, you know that 25 year old me that was just dumb and keen, you know, and just wanted to, you know, that was how old I was when I, you know, threw, threw myself into making a fishing show and just go, well, harness some of that bloody energy. And it's a little bit, you know, it's all very well saying that when you're 45, not 25. So just to sort of keep myself fit and thinking, well, I you know, get up in the morning, I'd go for a run and, you know, I give myself an opportunity for a bit of a, a reward and say, right, you know, 
got to get all this business stuff done. But at the end of the week, you know, on Friday, once it's all done, I'm going to shoot out to the farm and go for a dive. So just giving myself those little yeah. opportunities to, to get back to what I love rather than it all being about, right, I've just worked seven days a week to try and keep the business alive and I'll get a reward down the track. Well, you know, that might, might never come. So going for runs, um, getting up in the morning, doing some yoga, that's been a new one. Um, for me, which um, might, be, might be a few few uh, keen fish shows. Yeah. Um, what Matt Watson's doing yoga? What's that all? Yeah, about? don't worry. No, no, I still drink Lion Red, mate. I still drink Lion Red. Don't don't worry about that. But um, no, I actually started it when I was um, uh, boxing. You know, I, I took up boxing quite seriously a, a few years back, and I was actually my boxing trainer said, "Oh, you know, you should do yoga." And I thought he was taking the piss because he's you know, a big tough bastard, and um. He said, oh, well, I do it. And I thought, geez, well, if it's good enough for him, you know, you know, 50 professional heavyweight fights um, and tough as teak, I thought, well, I'll give it a go and actually improve my boxing. Um, just the, the, the flexibility and it was a good good foil for the intense training. Yeah. So um, just, yeah, it was, I was finding myself pretty stressed out at the start of lockdown with where business was going, being caged up. And I just, you know, looked it up on YouTube and gave it a go and I it wasn't like I'd finished it, finished it again because it's bloody hard, you know, twisting yourself around and shit. Um, it's not like I finished it. Well, I feel amazing now. Like it took, you know, I had to sort of force myself to do it for three or four sessions, and it wasn't about a week later. I just started feeling better and more able to to cope. And it comes back to all of that anthropology stuff that we're talking about. Yeah, you know, being physical and moving and doing all these things that we're supposed to do actually helps you. It, your state of mind and it's it's actually got me feeling like I want to sort of take more on at the moment which is good yeah I've, I've um, done a bit of, bit of yoga I, I'd like to do more but the, the few times that I have done it I've definitely felt very balanced very very grounded is that sort of what, yeah. what you get out of it as well yeah yeah well I mean who would have thought geez mate my um my 25-year-old self would kick my ass right now, for the, even just for this conversation. But <laughs> hey, don't, don't, don't fucking judge me out there. Just all right. <laughs> ah, good on you, Matt. Good on you. Good on you. Uh, so let's let's get back on the fishing tap. What's yeah, uh, I'm going to give you three three questions around your yeah. favourite fish. What's your favourite fish? Just to to catch, just for the sheer thrill of it. Um, giant trevally, yeah, giant trevally, yeah, yeah. Just because I, I haven't caught that many, and and each one is tough, and you know, it just makes me. I think any fish that you hook, and you do a little bit of wheeze, you know, that that you're freaking out that much, and then you get to catch it, it's it's good. But I mean, it's it's a close one thing. There's so many, you know. Yeah, there's what so a, many. But yeah, a, I'd say giant trevally. What, are, what about your favourite um, favorite fish to eat? If you're just going to go out there and get something for the pantry, what would it be? Oh, for the pantry, job, I love to eat tuna raw. You know, like your yellowfin and big eye. Just love, yeah. love that stuff. But um, in terms of a fish that, you know, I'm going to catch and I'm going to eat, I love blue cod, like cooked. You know, but if there's a cooked fish, I love blue cod. I love um, butterfish. Um, 
And I love, um, I really like Harpooker, you know, ahead of your bass and blue. I do like black bass and blue notes, but the old genuine Harpooker just got a bit bloodier and a bit fishier taste to me, you know, when they got that fat on them. So, yeah. Can't, can't, can't beat those Harpooker heads boiled up for fish stock, eh? Yeah. Oh, mate, yeah. Yeah, mate, I'm a, I'm a fish head fan. You, know, you, you probably know that. I'm a, I'm a real fan of fish heads. So uh, let's let's go go to butterfish. I haven't cooked a lot of butterfish. I've got four in the four in the chili bin from today. What uh, yeah. what's what's your favourite way to cook it, mate? Um, it's in the name butter. Um, yeah. So um, just, I, I you know fill up them up, skin them up. Um, they're one of the few fish. Well, probably just about the only fish that I actually normally gut. I gut them at, at sea. Um, you know when I come in for my dive. Yeah, just because all of the bits of kelp get just get everywhere, you know. I can normally, I normally prefer to fill up fish with the guts in. They just hold together a bit better. But I gut my butters, um, fill up them, that skin off, wipe all those poxy scales off. They get scales all over them, yeah. um, and then I just cut into sections and score the score the backside of it because they twist like it really twists and binds up in the pan, and I just pepper salt. Um, or whatever seasoning you want to do, and then a little bit of oil in the pan so you don't burn your butter. Chuck in some butter and just pan fry it. Don't even coat it with with flour. Yeah. Um, just Straight literally pan, pan fry it in, into a bit of butter and oil, and oh mate, beauty. Yeah. Beautiful. My mouth's watering. Can't wait. Yeah. Can't wait. So, um, and then in the process of filming all your TV shows, yeah, I mean you've. You must have met some amazing people over over the years. I've seen you've hosted some amazing people. You know, regularly have the All Blacks on your boat. What's yeah. um? I had a quiz you about who's who's the funniest person you've had on the boat? Funniest, um, Brody Retallick. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, Gus. Um, just like he's got a really wicked sense of humour and. Um, yeah, he's yeah, just just a side of him, um, and 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 the things that he comes up with just make you laugh. So, yeah, he would be, he would be the funniest guy, definitely. What about the most inspiring? Inspiring? Well, um, there's been quite a few people um, that I've had um, that have inspired me. Um, well, a lot actually. Um, one that I can sort of recall off the top of my head um, would be, well, before I started filming when I was working on the prime time and sword fishing, and it was um, John, the owner and skipper, his dad, who's um, sadly recently passed away. Um, he was um, almost 70, and he fought a swordfish for um, 16 hours and 40 minutes. Wow. Um, and we had a lot of drag on that fish. He'd already caught one for the trip. Um, and... Yeah, just seeing what he put his body through without complaining um, in a tricky situation. He'd had, I think, a triple bypass not all that far beforehand. And, and I, um, not too much sort of hits me, but there was a moment, and it was after about 10 hours, and John, the skipper, called me upstairs and gave me the old finger, you know, which no dicky likes, you know, being called up to the bridge. I thought, shit, what have I done wrong that I got the finger? And I went up there and he's like, right, you need to get you need to get dad out of the chair. And I said, Well, what do you mean he's going all right? And he said, Well, he had a bloody unbeknown to me, well, he had a bloody triple bypass. And if he keeps going like this, 
I'm going to be taking him home in a body bag. So I went down and tried to talk him out of the chair. Um, and he sort of politely said, no, I've got, I've got this, you know. Um, and then so 15 minutes later, you know, I, I just tried to keep my eyes on the horizon and steer the chair. Um, as soon as I turned around, I got the finger to go back up to the bridge again. And I went up and John said, look, I told you to get him out of the chair. So I went back and said, come on, Tom, you know, you've, you know, you've done the bulk of this fight, mate. Let one of the young boys jump in the chair and finish it. Um, to which he said, look, if John doesn't want to come down and tell me himself that he wants me out of the chair, he should probably do that. And I wasn't prepared to go and communicate that. But he said, I'll tell you one thing. He said, um, I could die in this chair fighting this fish. He said, I'm not a young man anymore. But um, if I die in this chair or if I die in 10 years, you know, if I die this afternoon or I die in 10 years or I die, um, you know, in 20 years, he said, I'll die regretting I gave up. But if I fight this fish and whether I get it or whether I die here, I will die today with no regrets. And I just thought, wow, man, it's nuts. Like someone had never said anything that powerful to me. And I sort of, you know, gave me a, a bit of perspective. And, and he carried on for another six hours. Like, it was a big, actually, you know, he was he was 69 at the time. He was almost 70. Um, and his, like, his legs were trembling. There was a lot of stress on his body. But not once did he say, nah, this hurts or I'm going to give up. And that was the first time I saw what it's possible to put a human body through, you know, when your mind's focused on it. So that's a long, you know, there's been lots of great, great, great and famous people that I've drawn inspiration from, but in terms of a single fishing moment, that, that, that was it for me. Did you get the fish? Yeah, we got it. Um, awesome. Unfortunately, yeah, we got it after 16 hours and 40 minutes and, um, We'd um, avoided, uh, at about the six hour stage, um, we avoided a big Marco that had come around the boat. Um, we, we took care of that because we'd, yeah. we'd had a few yeah. um, boards lost. And about a 60 kilo one bit it as we were pulling it through the door. So it was disqualified, otherwise it, it would have um, made the world record at the time. Oh wow. It was one. pretty gutting. Um, but again, to the credit of Tom, he just said, I just, I sort of looked at him and felt gutted for him because it's like we knew it was, you know, probably going to, when we hung it up, go pretty close to, you know, to being the wieldy and it was a disqualified fish now, you know, that it got bit coming through the, you know, while we were trying to tie ropes around it to get it through the door. And he said, it doesn't, that doesn't matter. He said, I know I've beaten that fish. I've beaten it fair and square. And I've, I've kind of taken that same philosophy. It's took, taken me a little bit, longer than back then um i don't um i don't weigh any fish at clubs anymore it's not that i've got anything against game fishing clubs i think they've definitely got a place and and um they're a big part of the, the whole economy that that drives fishing um, in new zealand and around the world and a, a huge part of the conservation effort but for me if i catch a fish i don't really care if a bunch of old dudes in florida say yes you did it right yeah, you know, I it, to me it's about you know do I feel like I've done right, um, which I I recount a lot of my greatest fish is not my biggest ones. It's it's sort of a more personal thing than that. You know, there was definitely a period there where I wanted to win every trophy in the cabinet at my fishing club, but and I'm not bagging people at fishing clubs, nah, not at all. But just for me personally, yeah. no, it's. Um, you know, just like Tom said, you know, it doesn't matter. He said, I, I know I beat that fish. It doesn't matter if it gets disqualified. Yeah, yeah. And it would have been good tucker too. 
Oh hell yeah, yeah yeah exactly. You know that was. Um, so yeah, while yeah, while yeah. we're while we're on the topic of swordfish, I put a bit of a post up on my Facebook last night and alluded to the fact I was talking to you today and um, asked what people might want to hear. And the probably the most comments I got was, um, "How do you catch so many swordfish?" What's um, without giving too much away, like what? Um, yeah, no, there's oh, still yeah. a bit of, bit of life left in the season too. We're um, we're in May, um, it, you know. It's probably probably prime time once we're back out there. Hopefully, yeah, it is. Week. Yeah. What? Um, yep. Someone wanting to go out and catch their first one. What what tips would you have other than? Um, okay, geez, uh, well, with what I can do, like uh, in the limited amount of bloody um, yeah. space we've got without bloody tying up rigs and stuff. Oh, and, and I will just mention, if you don't mind me sort of plugging, you can actually, all of the rigs that I do that I legitimately use are done in step by step videos and they're free. Like, no strings attached, just free to watch on our platform, Ultimate Fishing TV. So I use squid and, and mackerel uh, predominantly. And, and the rigs of the exact baits that I use, um, step by step are on there. So um, in terms of the rigging side, just jump on there and take a look. Um, in terms of, of where to go and how to do it, um, I'll tell you a bit of a yarn about how, about, about five years ago, um, I took my bloody boat in for a service and my marks got stolen. It was actually, well, the trailer was getting a warrant. And, um, and months, several months later, I, I heard a, a friend uh, that worked at the building supply place in town say, oh, I heard a couple of builders saying that they've got your marks. And oh, one saying, oh, I've got Matt, all of Matt Watson's marks, do you want them? And then so it made me sort of jump into my plotter and I saw that, um, you know, um, the, the, the last place my plotter had been turned on was the same in Whangarei, you know, at the place where my warrant was done. So I sort of looked into it and they turned out, they pinned it on the staff member who had left, but all of my marks got out. Everyone in Northland had them and further afield. And on there, I'd made the mistake of writing swordfish, swordfish, swordfish on all my spots. So I'd go back to these places where I'd see no one and there'd be six boats swordfishing sort of thing. Same as a pocket spot. So I, um, I took it upon myself to learn new new places that year and um and in my first three trips i went to three places that i'd never been before like not within i'd not sword fished within five mile nautical miles of those areas um and i caught either a swordfish on my first drop or my second drop and one of the places i caught a swordfish on my first and second drop yeah. um and they were all picked off the chart and i'll tell you what i looked for i just looked at the 500 meter contour line um, and wherever there was a, a kink in it, basically, wherever there was a kink and the contour lines bunched up is where I went. And, and that just stuck in my head from talking to a service liner um, on the SSB one night when I was working on the prime time. And um, you know, I was just talking about, you know, well, what areas do you look for? And he just said, follow the 500 meter contour line and look for where it bunches up. And I did that off of a chart. I went to three spots I'd legit never fished before. And of course, I drive around and use my sounder a lot. So I've, I've got Freno gear, which is, you know, I think you use the same. It's just that part ahead of the rest. You know, but when you're looking at depths like that, I want to be able to trust what's down there. Yeah. And um, I've heard all the rumours, people saying I've got gear that can mark swords and that's why I'm dropping on them. I'd love to think I was that good, but um, no. Um, I, I could, 
there's been marks that I've suspected might be swords, but I'm just looking for the attacker. And um, I'm looking for it 100 metres up off the bottom. And where have I, where have I, and I suspect that it's mostly frostfish. Um, but, so go to the 500 metre line, wherever there's a kink in it, sound it out and, and find where there's a, a reasonable drop. Look for food 100 metres up off the bottom. And that's honestly what I do. And I've had, you know, good success. You know. I mean, that's probably all I can tell you in a nutshell. Circle hook or J-hook? Circle all day, mate. Yeah, I've had... Um, it, 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 one of the things, I mean, early on, you know, when I worked on the prime time and, you know, we were night fishing, which is a whole lot harder. It's just so much harder to catch a swordfish at night. You know, to me, catching a swordfish during the day is almost ridiculously easy. And I don't want to sort of sound like a smart ass. I mean, should I was going out, I was watching my son and daughter play rugby and netball and launching my five metre boat at one o'clock, catching bait on the way out and catching two swords. You should not be allowed to do that, you know? A swordfish is more special than popping out after watching kids sport in the morning on a Saturday, being back in by 7 p.m. and tagging two swords, and, and two decent ones, you know, like a, a 180 and a, and a 120, you know, out of a, out of a center console. No, that's bullshit, <laughs> sorry, as an aside, but, you know, so like during the night, we used to use J-hooks, you know, because of the fights we were getting were so much stronger. And, and our theory in those early days was we need to hurt the fish. If we get a giant one, we've got no hope of, of landing it um, with a J. The thing is at night though, I mean, of all the swords we caught at night on the prime time, all using open gate offset Js, you know, with the theory of trying to hook them deep, we only ever hooked two deep that we heard. Um, and, and, and through observations, I figured out what was going on, you know, just from the amount of nights that I spent out there sword fishing, watching. Um, some nights, like, we'd have a, a bait out on a balloon, a long bait, um, and it would be normally 20 metres below the surface at night. And we pretty much only ever caught sharks on that. And I was always lobbing John to get rid of that shallow bait. It took a couple of years, but we did end up getting rid of that one. We had another bait about 35 metres down, out on a balloon, just just a little bit closer to the boat and 180 off the rod tip. And I would say that that 35 metre bait caught 70% of our fish. And then the other 30% were on, were on that 80 metre, sort of 80 to 100 metre deep bait. But so many times you might just hear a slight tick on the reel or something would kind of alert you to it. And you'd look down and, and the 80 metre bait, which we had a couple of buddy, you know, we might have a 32 ounce sinker on to keep it down there. The line was slack. And you'd, you'd look in the water and I'd be, what's that glow? And it'd be our light stick. And then you'd have a closer look and there'd be this sort of orb around it and it was a swordfish eye. And it had just grabbed a hold of the squid and swam up to the surface to see the lights of the boat. Sometimes I'd have both baits, but they wouldn't swallow them. They'd just hold them in their mouths. And um, learning about how a swordfish feeds, being a slash and retrieve feeder, um, you know, the number of times I was pulling a bait out and you felt the whack on the line, it was almost like a snapper bite, like boom, boom, boom. It's them coming through and they're slashing at the bait, boom, 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 and you, you feel that. And you, you've probably heard a lot of people saying, oh, it's like snapper bites, you know. Yeah. What they're doing is, because their eyes, their vision is so much better than the squid and other bait fish around them, that they've got the best eyesight of any fish. Well, sorry, the lens on their eye pulls in more light than any other lens on any other fish. And they've got a gland that heats the 
the nerve that goes from their brain to their eye. So down in that freezing cold or even at, at, at night when they're near the surface, they can compute vision. They can see. they got night vision, basically. So when they see a school of squid, might be hanging around your light squid, uh, light stick, they come through and they slash at it. Well, their, their, their bill's flattened that way, scientists. And as they're slashing at that school, they're, they're maybe banging up your bait as well. So you feel that boom, boom, boom. Then there's normally about a 10 second pause and then you'll feel the weight just come on slowly. And the reason it comes on slowly is not like a marlin bite or a tuna bite where they crash into it. It's because they're in no hurry to eat because they know that after they've come through slashing, most of the fish are going to scatter and all the ones they've hit are going to be sitting there wounded. They can just pick them up. And I don't believe they swallow until they see something else that they're ready to attack and eat again. Because we would, with these open jays, we would free spool sometimes for like two minutes and we'd hook them in the corner of the mouth every time. Yeah. And the, the night that we hooked too deep was a night that the ocean was just alive with squid. And I just believe that they grabbed our squid, swallowed them and carried on to try and hit some more. Yeah. So, um, yeah, long-winded sort of way of saying, I mean, that was our theory when we were night fishing. And then we just sort of took our J-hook theory over to deep dropping during the day when it happened, because we'd always just use J's for swords. And what we found during the day is when we used the J's, we were pretty much deep hooking every second or third fish. Because during the day down deep, they just seem to gulp. You know, they'll, they'll find a bait and they'll gulp it down. And um, I was so disappointed with the fights we got out of swordfish during the day, partly because they're coming up to the surface. So, you, you know, they do the opposite. You hook them at, on the surface at night, they go deep and you're in for a slog. During the day, they were coming up and we were gagging them. And um, so I, I switched over to circles and not only did I find my hookup rate was better, we were actually getting better fights. And, you know, it was the opposite to the theory when we started. We just wanted to try and take the fight out of them because there were that many times in those early days we just got our asses kicked on 1.30 at night. You know, fish would get over, over the edge of the shelf, just run down until we ran out of line. Um, but, you know, it, it kind of amuses me. I, if you want to have that badge of honour and say I've caught a swordfish, why wouldn't you choke it on a J-hook? You know, and wind up the slack and say, look at the size of this sword that I caught. You haven't caught a sword. You know, you've choked it. And that's where the rules are kind of a mockery. You have a guy like um, Tom, um, who fought a fought swordfish for 16 hours and 40 minutes and it got wounded literally as it was coming through the door and that fish is disqualified. Yet there's world records out there of fish that were choked in the first two seconds yeah. and floated up dead and, hey, look at my world record. It's, wow, you know, like, it kind of makes a mockery of why you'd go fishing. And to me, if you want to catch a sword, you want to do it because you know you, that you've got the best out of that fish. So get a circle. And then just like all the other species I use circles for, you get to make a choice whether you need that fish, you want to take it or let it go. Um, that choice gets taken away from you if it's gushing blood out of the gills. The, the ones you have kept, I mean, it's pretty good tucker. I think it's like the, oh, yeah. cons the texture and consistency is a little bit like pork. It's almost not like it is. bloody great eating. What's, uh, what's yeah. your favourite way to cook it? Um, oh, man, you can do so much with it. Um, baked, pan-fried, just, just how you cook um, 
you know, if you've got a nice bit of veal, yeah. and um, you know, if, if how you you just sort of um, fry a bit of veal, um, pan fried, it, it absorbs anything you put on it. So um, I've had some great dishes, you know. My wife doesn't like the taste of fish as much as I do. So, you know, when we've got a chunk of swordfish, she kind of wants to get into all the, you know, the pestos and flavorings and all yeah, that sort of stuff. Flavor, go right. along with. Yeah, and it, it does absorb it. And because it, it's so oily, it doesn't, it doesn't overcook. I mean, you know, I like it, um, but I don't love it. And I, I tend to let go of the swords that I catch just because I know that, that one day one is going to be mortally wounded. And I had one last year. Um, my son was his first swordfish. Um, and he was almost in tears that we couldn't let it go. We tried 45 minutes yeah. um, to let it go. Um, and I said, mate, it's okay. It's, um, none of it's going to get wasted. Yeah. And you know, this is the very reason that I let the healthy ones go, because I know that one day one's not going to be healthy. And that's one tongue at all wants me to take. Exactly. So uh, you, you just launched a new boat, Matt, which is going to, um, you know, everyone will get to see it in the new series coming up. It looks, looks yeah. incredible. It looks sick. One of the things I, I admire about you is you've um, stuck with pretty much a lot of the sponsors have backed you from the beginning and yeah. obviously Stabycraft are one of them. Um, yep. Carried those relationships and stayed loyal th um, through the years with them. One one of those would be um, Fruno, and I see I see they've kitted you out with um, the very latest and greatest in um, Wasp multi beam sonar. What's uh, what's it like being having that um, that sort of kit on your boat? Is it is that a has it been a game changer? Oh yeah, I mean I've, I'm still getting to know it, but it's blown my mind. You know, like um, I'd heard about all the stuff that it could do. And, and the whole theory behind it. And um, I was a little bit skeptical. Um, and, and like the 3D mapping and all that is great. You know, like it's, like everywhere you go, you're drawing a map of the seafloor. But the amount of control you've got with the amount of detail um, in the mapping and, and then how you can customize it to your own views is, is incredible. But in day-to-day -day use, what blows my mind is the width of the beam. And it really got me in the, you know, when it was brand new, it was like my second time out on the boat, you know, after literally commissioning the electronics and it was snapper spawning season up here. And I'd, I'd hit it out the day before the AVs came out. So I thought, should I better go and find out where, you know, some, some fish are. And I was marking snapper 35 metres either side of my boat. Yeah, yeah, so I had a yeah. 70 metre wide swathe. And... And not only would it pick up and, and put the draw the mark of where the fish were on the chart, I could filter out. Um, you can filter out fish that you don't want. So um, what I'd do is I'd sort of go over the top of where some fish were, and I would know that they were because I'm still running my normal. Um, I was running my Freno um, uh, DF3 as well simultaneously, two transducers going for it, and I know what snapper marks look like on those. So I'd go over the top, mark them. The same fish that I was marking on my uh, wasp, you can hold your cursor over the top of that mark and it'll tell you the decibel reading, the, like the strength, the, the frequency that that mark is giving you back. So then I just go into my mark settings um, and I would, I would say I only want to see marks that are in this frequency range. So you know when you've got snapper that might be in amongst Mau Mau and a whole bunch of other shit, I'd just filter them out. 
and so only the only the snapper were being drawn on my chart. Um, so I'd just drive over an area and I'd see a cluster of marks and um, hold the cursor over and go, yep, they're in the right frequency range for snapper. And literally you're getting a, like a live real-time picture of where the snapper is sitting all around you and go over as soon as they're showing on the 2D view, boom, just dropping our liveies and you know, jigs and salt baits, whatever, straight to them. Just incredible. And we filmed some stuff which is still to be released on doing exactly that. Yeah, yeah. Have you, have you found much ground just with the 3D mapping and the sonar, much ground that um, you didn't know was there? Has it given you yeah. insight into grounds you thought you knew? Oh, in your hand? It does. Um, not only, um, yeah, I mean, with a 2D view, you, you kind of got, a, you have a bit of a feeling. You, you think you know rocks, you know, rocks that I've fished for years, you know, in the bay. Um, once you're 3D map, you're like, holy crap, it's actually like a real sharp edge on this side and it goes down to mud, um, you know, because it, it actually, it draws you, you can flick it into a mode where you, instead of having your shading by depth, you can have it by bottom density. So you can see literally in live real time how hard the bottom is as well, um, which is just, I mean, and it's all a couple of clicks away, you know, you just click on something, you get your drop down, click on that and, it has really changed. The, the trouble is, mate, is, geez, I've just about driven into about four boats just because I'm spending so much time like this now, you know, click, 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 you know, especially snapper spawning season, you know, it's all bloody boats out in the bay. I've just, I'm fixated on the screen. And that's, I mean, aside from the danger of, of that, um, let's not forget as, as fishermen, you know, I still equally enjoy going out in the, in the dinghy with no electronics and using nouns, you know, just where the birds are active, you know the way the birds are um, moving on the water all of those sorts of things that um you know you learn as being a fisherman that i learned from my uncles when we did have no electronics in my boat it's um yes electronics are incredible um but don't don't forget how to use these and these and even your nose smelling bait fish um all of that sort of stuff as well yeah uh, you're on it uh i think the last time i saw you matt was uh, I was lucky enough to get up and have a fish with you on your last boat, and um, yeah. good probably four or five years ago. Yeah, uh, a couple yeah, of awesome, awesome days. I think the last day we headed out of Monganui and um, yeah. got a whole lot of gem gem fish, which we smoked up, and some um, some nice big bass. Very, I remember that very, very fondly. You got an awesome backyard up there. Now you mentioned yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned your building. At the moment, you're uh, you're building your your dream pad outside yeah. of town, out near the water. Tell us a little bit about that and um, how that's coming on. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's pretty much right at the northern tip of the Bay of Islands. Um, just through a crazy set of circumstances, I came across the guy that was selling it ten years ago, and um, yeah, same sort of thing. Really had to had a bit of a job convincing the missus that we go into debt to, you know, grab a, a block of dirt because she's just not as passionate about the sea as what I am, you know. So um, fortunately, she, um, you know, she did, she saw the the potential um, in it. Um, and what actually got her across the line was not, hey, it's an amazing bit of land on the coast where you can fish off, you literally fish off your front doorstep. It was the fact that I sort of what I said to her was. Look, you know, in our lifetimes, we've seen beaches disappear. 
not just in Northland, but all around New Zealand. Um, they've gone into foreign ownership. Um, the ones that you do still have access to are crowded and every last muscle's been ripped off the rocks. I said, you know, what, what better gift could we give to our kids and grandkids than, you know, um, having access to the coast where they can do the things we did when we were kids, you know, go and get some muscles off the rocks or, you know, st still have power in the rock pools. Um, and, uh, you know, so again, it comes right back to, yeah, the land's great, but it's what it can can give to you and, and, what, and what you can give back as well. I mean, since in that 10 years, I mean, we've had it for 10 years and we only started building a couple of months ago, but we've, we've planted 27,000 native trees on it. In the meantime, yeah, yeah, we've got another 5,000 going in into this month. Um, and I've just got a vision to, of restoring it back to pre-European times. Um, and I'll never see that fulfilled in my lifetime, but I've started it. And, um, you know, my kids and, and grandkids will probably see the job done. Oh, that's awesome, mate. I'm, I'm sort of in a slightly similar boat, moved just out, out the edge of town. You see, I've got a little bit of a view of the Aldi's in behind me. Yeah, nice, yeah. nice big bit of land, but I think one of the things, um, just with that little bit of, little bit of whenua, just uh, that connection to nature you have, especially you go through the building process. We've built, um, built a few cabins just to um, dot around the building site and live on site while we while we build. But um, I think one of the things I've enjoyed is just that. Um, that exercise and moving, getting out and um, just seeing something tangible from your yeah. results instead of sitting in front of a computer doing doing yeah. work, you know, if you're off the water, actually getting out there and doing something physical and seeing, like you're saying, you've planted 27,000 plants so far, just being able to go and yep. see them and see them grow, it must be pretty fulfilling. Oh, mate, it's huge. Yeah. Like not to, I mean, at the end of a day of planting, I can look, not only look back and see, hey, look, there's there's hundred more plants in the ground that, that were there today, you know, and it might be, don't get me wrong, I've got blisters and, you know, the old body's not getting any better for me to be on a shovel, particularly some of the, the hills that I'm climbing up. But but I get a re real buzz out of it, and it's a buzz that keeps giving back. Every time I go back to the property and they've grown a little bit, um, I'm like, yeah, shit, yeah, you know, and you start to visualise what it's going to be like when it's full, full native cover, you know, and it's same as last weekend, I spent the weekend on, on a concrete mixer, hand mixing concrete to get our, our foundation piles in. And people are like, geez, that must have sucked. And I, I loved every minute of it. I didn't, I didn't love how sore I was and that I could barely walk. And, you know, and we had a couple of young labourers, you know, I wanted to sort of set the pace for them, you know, so there was a little bit of bravado there spurring me on. But I, I loved it, mate. I, I loved every minute of it. And again, it comes back to that primal thing, you know. Shelter was one of the things that you're supposed to be doing, you know. And yes, you can you can work in an office like I do a lot of the time and earn the money and pay someone else to do it. I just don't think that's rewarding as building your own shelter. So yeah, any day I'm, I'm doing it tomorrow, I've got a couple of bloody Zoom meetings first thing in the morning and then I'm out to site and I'm back in the concrete mixer. Just, and, and like I'm... I'm legitimately frothing about the opportunity to get my hands dirty and build shelter for my family, you know? Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, you alluded um, back to your days of commercial fishing early on in, early on in our talk. What's, um, what's your view on the state of the New Zealand fishery? Are we, are we managing it right? You've obviously 
been working on the water for many years, both commercial, now recreational and entertainment. How have you seen it change? Do you think we're managing it right at a governance level? No, no, we're not. No, it's, it's, it's quite simple. I mean, um, we can fall into the trap of going, oh, look, um, snapper fishing has been is better this year than it was last year. Um, or, geez, there's more kingies around than what there used to be. But, but the benchmark um, for our generation is pretty low. Like the 80s, it was pretty well decimated, um, a, lot of, a lot of the fishing. So where we're seeing minuscule improvements in some fishery is because it's so low. Okay, so it's been fished down so hard. And um, we've just got a, a broken system. The quota management system does not work, um, not in its current form. Um, I, I feel the intent of it when it was started was kind of right and it could have been right. Um, and and I, I still wholeheartedly believe in, in commercial fishermen having um, some a vested ownership over, over the fish they catch. I don't know if ownership is the right word, a vested interest, which is kind of, I believe, the intent of setting it up. Okay, you get some quota and it's like getting a little land and you can farm it. The difference is when that quota falls into the hands of a corporate. You know, a corporation or a company by its very nature isn't human. It is designed purely for, for profit. And if being responsible and caring of the environment and honest affects your profit, well, you, it's not going to work. Um, so the people that are profiting out of the destruction of our oceans aren't fishermen. They're not people like you and I that love the ocean, care for it, understand the real value of a fish isn't a per kilo weight. It's, 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 it's what it gives you. It's what it nourishes your soul, what it feeds your family. So, you know, when people are looking at a spreadsheet going, how can we get more profit out of this? And that's what is driving how the fish are being extracted. It can only go in one direction, which is to destruction. Um, I say get the, the quota and control of the, um, of the fishermen, because don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not anti-commercial fishermen. The vast majority, like the, the, the percentage of good commercial fishermen is the same percentage of good wreck, wreck fishermen. You know, there's dickheads on both sides that just want to abuse and, and I, you know, fill their boat up and don't give a shit about it. But these guys, the, the most of the commercial fishermen that you see on the water when you see a commercial boat going past, they don't own the quota. They're essentially a, a slave to a corporation. They're only being given just enough to survive. So, you know, there needs to be some changes made where some of the control goes back to the people on the water that actually care about it. And that means deconstructing our current system, taking the power out of those big companies. Yeah, I, th I th think where it, where it hits, hits home for me is a classic example in Tyra is with, I've got a good mate that owns a restaurant um, right on the water's edge, probably 20 steps away from where the local crayfishermen comes in and unloads his catch and for many years he's been unable to buy crayfish off this guy because it's all sucked up goes to Fidianga to the factory that's obviously takes diesel yeah to uh, truck those crayfish up there get swum in tanks for I don't know might be anywhere from a couple of days to a week yeah. 
and you imagine the energy that gets put into that. Then it gets diesel to Auckland. Then before all this COVID thing happened, it would be then jet fueled to China. So yeah. locals that want to go and eat at the restaurant or tourists haven't been able to eat the crayfish that are swimming right on our back doorstep. It to me is just absolutely madness. And we talk, about, we talk about climate change, that there, you know, we can plant as many trees as we want and everything. But I think a lot of, a lot of what we're talking about climate change comes how, down to how we manage food and get and source our food. We should be sourcing food as close to home as possible and not um, shipping it halfway around the world, in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, oh mate, exactly. Yeah, and I'll I'll give you a, a quick version of a, a local Kiri Kiri um, version of that same thing. Young guy, neat neat entrepreneurial fella, started up a burger joint in, in Kiri Kiri, and it's mate, it's cranking. Mate, he just makes the best burgers. I'll give him a plug. Burger Fiesco, there we are in Kiri, and he thought I'm gonna. Um, he sort of asked me one day, he goes, mate, I love the free fish heads thing you do about you know getting people to use the whole fish heads and all that. I, I want to, you know, make a burger along those lines. So I want to get a hold of some blue nose chicks. It's like, good on you, mate. So he put it on the menu and he, he, so there's literally straight out here, there's boats coming in loaded with tons of blue nose. Okay. So he tried to get some of them. Nah, can't do it. So the blue nose get freighted down to Auckland to even get filleted and cleaned. So they're, they're not even getting, no locals, and there's plenty of unemployment up here, ain't getting jobs. They're going to a processing plant in Auckland. He has to pay more than the cost for the fillet because they don't normally bother chopping the cheeks out, you know, to get the offal, because that's a special order. So he has to pay extra for them to then get on a truck and come all the way up to be dropped at his place. And the cost made it unviable. When he wanted to use a waste product, potentially employ a local on the wharf that could chop the cheeks out yeah. to save them going either. And it, it's ridiculous. And I mean, we could even stay, take it a, a step further and say, you know, wouldn't it be amazing? I mean, let's talk about our, our tourism industry because that's always been hung up on a pedestal as New Zealand, you know, not so much now, but our, our great export earner. Does a tourist really want to come, um, you know, to, Fidianga or Tairua and um, sit in a restaurant and eat um, a, a bit of cow that's come from Auckland or a bit of, um, you know, they, they want to eat, the, they've seen the boats coming in, they want to eat what's coming off those boats. So, you know, for, for a tourism experience and even for locals to be able to go down to the wharf, see what's coming off and see it go straight into the restaurant and get cooked or hey, take it a step further, they can go out and catch the thing themselves. You know, and all of a sudden, instead of getting your you know, $8.50 a kilo and think you're doing quite well for a bit of fish, um, I did a bit of a study. This is back, you know, in my early 20s when I was working on the, the prime time um, about swordfish. The commercial guys at the time, I don't know what they were getting, were getting 10 bucks a kilo and they were just slaying them up through a loophole, um, which allowed them to catch swords as bycatch. Even though 90% of their catch for some boats was bycatch, they kept accidentally catching all of the swordfish. They were getting 10 bucks a kilo for them. Um, we worked out on the number of swordfish that we killed um, and just what we, and I'm not including all the other tourism ventures that people did when they came to New Zealand, we were getting, we were getting $1,850 a kilo. And that's just adding up the, 
um, the charter fees, the local accommodation, and the airfares. I was just quizzing the guys that came on the boat. And that didn't include the ones that went down to Queenstown or, or took their family with them around as well. So if you want to get value out of a, a fish, um, you know, and, and I know that w with what you're doing with providers, it's all about taking the fish, and that's cool. So cool with it. Um, but sport fishing comes under a lot of pressure. It's like, oh, you're just grabbing this fish, dragging it around the ocean, torture it, and let it go. Well, well, you could go out on a commercial fishing long line, hook a marlin on it, let it drag around the ocean for the same amount of time, but kill it, okay? And get, let's say uh, on a good day, you might get a couple of hundred bucks for your marlin. Or you could get twenty or $30,000 for the local economy, and it's still swimming. And that's where, and, and that's lost um, on a lot of people. And I've been to places that, that you know, have been referred to as third world countries, you know, Costa Rica, where they just say, like, hey, guess what? No one's catching any of these fish. Anything that's valuable for a tourist, you're not allowed to kill it. Yeah. Um, you can kill all these other good eating fish for the locals and you can still catch them. And they've just got thriving sport fishing industries. Alaska is another one. And I just think New Zealand aren't doing it smart. It's all about catching the most and selling it for the cheapest instead of catching the least and putting a premium on, premium on it. I mean, yeah, I, snapper. I, yeah, even, even those sword boats, like if, um, if they had control of um, the quota themselves, they'd be selling selling it for, I don't know, $40, $50 a kilo instead of the $10 a kilo, and they probably would have to catch a lot less, probably a quarter That's of them right. actually catching. Absolutely, mate. Yeah, I mean, you, you take that example or, or many others. I mean, you, the fact that you can buy a New Zealand snapper cheaper in an Australian supermarket, you can buy it in New Zealand, beggars believe. But what it's about is it's about bulk. So the fishing companies go, if you guarantee you're going to take 200 ton a year off of us, we'll give it to you at this rate. So just keep this, the supply going. So what they're thinking about is bulk supply. Just as long as we're supplying, the money's ticking up. My way of thinking is, okay, let's just cut off the supply and say, guess what world? There's only one place in the world that New Zealand Snap is available. This is the new price. This is the new price. And for a little while, they might go away and buy some North Sea herring or some eat some whiting, but it's not as good as New Zealand snapper. It hasn't got the brand or the reputation of New Zealand snapper. And we dictate the price. Yeah. Um, catch less, sell it for higher. Um, the spatial conflict disappears. The environmental damage disappears because you can use more selective methods. Um, we need to get ahead of the game. We need to be doing what Canada's doing where you can go to a supermarket in Canada and there's rows of lobster, you know, the Canadian lobster. Each one has got a barcode on it. Um, and when you scan it, or it might even have a little plaque in front of it, you can see the fisherman that's caught it. And so they're all the same price. But when I was there and bought one, I decided to buy it off the guy that wasn't a corporate. That was a third generation lobster potter. And I could read the little blurb about him. I'm like, I'm buying your one, mate. Um, you know, because, and you know where it's come from. It's traceable back to the source. So, you know, there's so many things that can be done. I could talk forever about it. But, but the first thing we've got to do is take, you know, the power out of the, the corporations that have got it, the, which are the, 
you know, the quota holders and we've got to dismantle the system because we've got the knowledge now to build a better one. So you're you're an extremely busy man, Matt, and I'm very fortunate, very um, very stoked that you've um, given up be over an hour an hour of your time. Oh, no, say, say we cleared your calendar for the next three days. You could do whatever you want, go wherever you want, um, spend it with whoever you want. What would you do? Who and who would you spend your time with? Oh, jeez. Definitely three days. Wow. Um, I'm going to um, have a land-based fish with my son. Um, me on the fly rod, him on um, him fishing is, well, he'll probably be fishing soft baits now. He's, he's a bit of a convert. So, um, yeah, I just I just really enjoy that. Um, you know, whether it be land-based fishing or whatever, I'd definitely do a free dive. Yeah. Um, definitely. Um, are we talking um, lockdown rules still apply? Ah, no, no rules. Okay, sweet. Okay, I'd, I'd get my big boat out, yeah. and um, I'd go, I'd go sword fishing with my mates. Yeah. And and not that I particularly love, I do love going sword fishing, um, not so much for the swords, which are always good to catch, but I just like seeing one of my mates struggling on the end of a rod while I'm drinking a beer, giving him shit, because yeah. I know where. You know, so I did, did be a whole day doing that. Um, free dive, yeah, free dive and land based fish. Um, yeah, funnily enough, yeah. Um, when people ask me that, what would I do on my time off? Would be go fishing. Yeah. And if it was a if it was a uh, a month ago, or you know a few weeks ago, I'd probably probably head into the bush for the war. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I see. Uh, I see. You, you mentioned your um, yeah, young fella. I see you spend um, spend a lot of time with him, and you seem to be imparting a lot of knowledge to him. He seems pretty switched on fisherman these days is oh, that mate, no don't talk him up no he's not that good <laughs> <laughs> hey, nah, he's he's passionate about it man and he's um uh, he, he was a real late bloomer with it i just i, I really thought he wasn't going to be into fishing which was cool you know um you know of course most dads want, want their kids to to have sheer interest and he just wasn't really interested in fishing until a couple of years ago like he would um i mean we still did lots together but he definitely preferred to come hunting with me than than fishing and man, something changed and he's just gone crazy on it. So uh, it's good for me. I mean, when you say share knowledge, sometimes it doesn't always get accepted, you know. Uh, um, and I just think it's a, a natural way, you know. He wants to learn the hard way sometimes. I'll say, hey, mate, you should do it like this. And oh, yeah, whatever, dad, type thing. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to, to share what I can. And oh, I just need to be able to spend that time, you know, together and... and Again, fishing is one of the few things I think that not just fathers and sons or fathers and daughters or mothers and daughters, but people in general across different age brackets can actually genuinely do something together. I mean, if a kid was to say, hey, dad, let's go down the BMX park, yeah, you'd do it and you would have fun. But when you're both doing something you genuinely love and you're equally as vested, um, you know, it's a pretty rare thing to find, I, I think, between parents and kids. And and you're showing the kids the that, you know, the the connection with nature and getting yeah. outdoors into the fresh air. I you, you can't can't beat it. And I, that's how how I got into fishing. You know, with being out on the water with my old man and my granddad. And sadly, neither of them are here with us today. But 
you know, I've, I've, I've they're only a memory away, and probably you know the yeah. fondest memories I've got is the time that yeah. the great times I spent with them on the water. Yeah, mate. Yeah, I know exactly. And and um, you know, it sounds cliche, but but you can't get that time back. So I'm pretty grateful that I've you know. I've um I've had this opportunity um, recently, you know, and that I've kind of woken up to it as well. You know, I felt like I perhaps, you know, for quite a few years here didn't have the balance quite right. I kind of thought I did at the time, but I was I was weighted too heavy to work. Um, I still don't know what the right balance is, but it certainly certainly feels a bit better now. And um and I think you know a word that I'll drop in there, and I think when you sort of summed up about teaching them, it's just that word respect. Yeah. And it's um it's a, it's a big word really it, it it pulls a lot in you know it's um respect for each other and your environment and as soon as you understand you know um yes it's good to feel good when you when you when you kill a fish or you know to take it home and eat it um but it's also important to un- understand that you are killing something as well so um you know it's it's not all very you know for young fellas it's all yeehaw and red bull um you know you you. Sometimes you just need to slow down, have, have a little bit of a think about something, and you know, no better way to do it than fishing, <coughs> fishing or hunting. Yeah. Oh, awesome, Matt. Thanks so much for your time. Speaking hey, of family, I better let you get back to your family. Yeah. Hi, uh, with uh, Farnell. Um, Will do. You've got a new show coming up. I've been uh, I've been watching a yeah. few of your classics. Um, yeah, mate. Um, during lockdown, yeah, yeah. got a. Got a whole new um, series coming coming out. When whole, whole new series coming this winter the telly. Um, well, I don't think we're allowed to release the um, dates yet. You know that's all part of the old television bizzo because um, they're worried about the what the opposition might do. But I would say in the next few weeks we'll be able to make an announcement on start dates for our new series. And yeah, we've got a bit of work. We've got a bit of work to do to put it all together. Um, but we've got some cool shit and the the can that I'm. Yeah, I'm excited for to see what people think of it because some of it's a little bit new, they're different, you know. Awesome! I can't wait to see it. Thanks, it's better. We uh, we better yeah. up for a fish soon. Good yarn, yeah, yeah, mate. And um, we get the juices flowing, bro. <laughs> it's it's pretty weird having a catch up like this, but yeah, we'll we'll do it again. Let's go do it on the water. Yeah, come on, mate. See ya. Yeah. See you, mate. Yeah.